0: University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with Scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of Scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out Uhail.net for a Zoom link and more information.
1: The Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 4 and 8 through 11. The year of the Lord's favour. to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called Oaks of Righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is God's word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. And
0: the New Testament reading this morning is from Luke 1, verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The word word of God. God. Thanks Thanks be to
2: God. God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy God, we give you thanks and praise, and we pray that you would give us hearts eager to glorify you, to rejoice, uh, to magnify you. Uh, We thank you for the gift of your word that makes that all possible. And so we pray that uh, as a garden puts up sprouts, that uh, your word would be planted in our souls and bloom in ways that delight you and bless us in your world. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they'd be acceptable in your sight. And we ask it in Jesus' name, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it, it... it, it is Joy Sunday, our theme for the week is joy, and it feels like kind of a weird time to be preaching on joy. Uh, you know, I, I was glad to start the Advent season with hope, because heaven knows we need some of that, and and peace seems appropriate in this time and place when not much is going on, but, but, you know, joy seems a little more elusive these days. It feels like a while since I asked someone how they were doing, and they responded joyfully. <laughs> Uh, sometimes I feel like I need to keep my joy in check. You know, I, I don't want to be too happy clappy, right? Uh, as a pastor, I, I don't want to be accused of using religion to turn away from the pain of the world. I, I've known people who are sort of embarrassed about being too joyful, as though it's perfectly reasonable to wear sackcloth and ashes all the time and somehow inappropriate to trade that for a garment of victory, like Isaiah says. Being too joyful can make it seem like we're not really uh, paying attention to what's really going on, and I don't want to seem inconsiderate or worse, uninformed. But maybe that actually says more about me than. Anything that's actually true, because the Bible positively courses with joy, right? From from beginning to end, from the moment that God delights in creation and sits back and calls the whole thing very good to those numberless choirs singing at the top of their lungs in wonder, love, and praise at the end of it all. Joy is all over the pages of the, of the Bible and woven into the lives of the saints. And we'd be hard-pressed to say that the Bible doesn't also take seriously the mess of things, too. Uh, There's every nasty thing you can think of in the Bible. Our our ancestors of faith who wrote and edited and compiled the scriptures and every generation since who's insisted that the Holy Spirit speaks powerfully through them are nothing if not honest about the fact that the world is not all that it's meant to be. Sometimes the descriptions are pretty detailed, Uh, and yet... They never quite shake the fact that joy is at the root of what we're about, what we're called to, what we're made for. You know, the Bible has no problem setting uh, the mess alongside the marvelous, right? As if to remind us that both can actually be taken seriously. The same scriptures in which we're told that the the joy of the Lord is our strength and to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice is the same book that has an entire book called Lamentations. You know, the Psalms have no problem going back to back with a, a a prayer that 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 wails about our wretched circumstance and then a song about how wonderful the world is. Wretchedness and wonder side by side, junk and joy together. For reasons that aren't perfectly clear to me, it seems that the church has often taken the former more seriously than the latter. Right? You know, often when I when I think about joy, I remember an opening paragraph from one of the chapters in Eugene Peterson's book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, which I know many of you have read. And there he writes this. He says that Ellen Glasgow, an author, um, in her autobiography, tells of her father, who was a Presbyterian elder, full of rectitude and rigid with duty. She says he was entirely unselfish, and in his long life, he never committed a pleasure. And then he goes on to say that the the author of a political column in the Baltimore Sun described the sober intensity and personal austerities of a Maryland politician, and then threw in this line, he dresses like a Presbyterian. (laughs) Apparently, we're all supposed to know what a Presbyterian dresses like, and presumably it is not joyful, right? Not a lot of pinks and oranges, I guess. Now, Eugene Peterson's a Presbyterian, so maybe he's more sensitive to these comments. And, and you know, we in the United Church tend to have a, a maybe a less somber reputation. Uh, we can be in danger of swinging wildly in the other direction sometimes, but we also can be awfully serious about the things that we're serious about too, can't we? And, and I, I think that the caricature of church folks as largely pleasureless, uh, rigid and stern, quite possibly boring, is not uncommon. <laughs> Now, I wonder how easy it would be to convince even our most affable agnostic friends that the beginning and end of Christianity is joy. Like I don't think that's the word on the street. Now, of course, we're not always happy. The, the same St. Paul who tells us more than once to rejoice in the Lord always also goes on about his tears and his frustrations and his sufferings. We, we take all that stuff seriously. When one of us suffers, all of us suffer. Now, the the scriptures are pretty clear that the most universally human thing that Jesus did after being born was to suffer. We're not ignorant of or disinterested in the pain of the world, in our neighbors, and in ourselves. It's just in the company of that same Jesus who was dead and is alive, we have this relentless insistence that that stuff isn't going to get the last word on us or on this world. Now, I mentioned the book of Lamentations a minute ago, and if you haven't read it, it's it's this sort of devastating read right in the middle of the Bible, and it's attributed to the prophet Jeremiah, written after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonian army and the temple left in rubble and the people dragged off into Israel, and it's this litany of desperation and despondency. But it's also a series of acrostic poems based on the Hebrew alphabet. And so, in a way, its very structure it says that we can use every letter we've got. We can use all of our words to express our pain and our brokenness. But it also says that there's a limit to that expression. Now, eventually, the letters run out. The grief is named and cried, but it cannot, it, it, it will not be endless. As the psalmist puts it sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And the night may seem endless, but it's not. And that may seem like a a bit of rosy, positive thinking. It's it's certainly not a self-evident truth, but it is true. It's a truth born of a relationship with the one who refuses to cut and run from pain, who refuses to wash the dirt of Eden off his hands, who refuses to back down even in the face of death. You know, just as our hope is a consequence of getting caught up with the God who does has been tenacious in doing unexpected things, setting captives free, turning slaves into priests, making paths in the wilderness, which by definition is a place where there are no paths, making rivers in the desert, which by definition is a place where there are no rivers. So our joy is the consequence of knowing the one who whose delight and determination is to make all things new. Now, the word that we heard from Isaiah echoes in every generation. It's meant for us too. Let's hear it again. Pay attention to the verbs in all this. The word of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn. In Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up, ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. That's a good word. And when Jesus needs a, a, a passage of scripture to describe what he's about, this is the one he reads, right? When he wants to tell us what his mission is, what he came for, what it means to get caught up with him, Isaiah's words are the script. Check it out in Luke chapter 4. He rolls into the synagogue, takes the scroll, finds this passage and reads it and says, today, here and now in me, this passage is fulfilled. This promise is fulfilled. This is who I am. I am the one who sets captives free and binds up the brokenhearted. I am the one who is evidence of God's favor for this world. Now come follow me. And of course, he doesn't actually say, Now come follow me in Luke 4, but he says it over and over in his ministry, so it's kind of implied. The invitation is always there. When when he says that he's here to turn the world over, it's an invitation to grab a corner and get in on it. Start doing some flipping of our own. But overturning the world, if that's good news, also means that we need to recognize that true joy may not always be the same thing as our familiar ideas of happiness. I mean, happiness is nice. I like happiness. I like being happy. I have committed the occasional pleasure, uh, but it's fleeting and circumstantial. Uh, I'm not sure that we can be truly happy without joy, but we can be joyful regardless of our circumstances. Uh, as Frederick Beekner says, we we have every reason to be joyful even though we've surveyed all the facts. After all, St. Paul's instruction to rejoice in the Lord always was written from a Roman prison cell, which uh, are not known to have been places of uh, a special happiness. <laughs> I think of C.S. Lewis's quotation. He, he said once, I, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port could do that. Uh, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity if we're chasing after happiness, if our goal is to do what makes us happy, Jesus may not be our guy. But if we want to know joy, the deep joy that we're made for, as one of the great catechisms of the church said, that the chief end of humanity is, is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. If we want a joy that's like a stream of living water that gushes up to abundant life, Jesus invites us to get in on that and he's the one who will deliver on the promise. A joy that will make us sing like Mary, like we just heard, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has done marvelous things. That kind of joy is what happens when we learn to say with her, let it be with me according to your word. Or as the 20th century martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, discipleship means joy. To be joyful is to become more and more like Jesus, to do what he does. That's what a disciple does. We do what the master does. To be joyful is to be sold out like Jesus for the world that God wants, come what may, trusting that God is going to get that world. To be joyful is to be caught up with the one who does unexpected things like showing up under the ribs of a nobody girl from a nobody place to overturn the world. The one who comes at great personal cost not to make our kingdoms great, but to draw us into the greatness of his kingdom, his vision for the world. A vision that even death won't stop. And what's that going to look like? Isaiah gives us some clues. To begin, it's not going to be precisely our work. right? We're in on it. We have to do with it. But it's not ours. Isaiah is not laying out his plan to fix things. This is the work of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has sent me. This is God's doing. And that's what makes it truly joyful. That's what makes it actually good news. The God who made and loves this world is on the move. And the God who made and loves this world and is on the move has made a claim on our lives. You know, at some point, Jesus looks at his disciples, looks at us and says to us, as the father sent me, so I'm sending you. He even has the nerve to say to us, you didn't choose me. I chose you. This isn't our idea, it's his. To be joyful isn't to chase after whatever we imagine will make us happy, even if that seems like pretty noble stuff. Because the truth is we're not very good at knowing what makes us happy. If we were, advertising wouldn't be nearly as effective. And if we knew what made us happy, the serpent wouldn't have gotten anywhere in in the garden. But the joy of the Lord, if that's our strength, that means that the work of joy is the work of God. To be joyful is to allow God's spirit to have God's way with us. It's to entrust our lives, heart, soul, mind, and strength to the one who is committed to satisfying every need and wiping away every tear. That's the God who's on the move, the one who will show up in Bethlehem with the angel army choir, the one whose joy will send the shepherds running to see the good news, the one who is still on the move and still sending us, choosing and anointing and sending us. To make it known, and if Jesus is right, that, that then I think that to be truly joyful is to cause some holy mischief, right? It, it should be kind of kind of risky. We should be taking some risk for something new. It should be kind of fun. It should be a little dangerous, perhaps. You know, it's to use our imaginations to see what it would be like if if our lives were good news for the oppressed. Now, what does the the Holy Spirit want to do in your life that would be good news for the oppressed? Go do that, even if it ruffles some feathers. How can you, with whatever you've got, be about the work of binding up the brokenhearted? How can we be setting captives and prisoners free, and how can we bust some folks out? Maybe that's actual prisoners, and maybe it's just paying attention to the chains and the burdens that are weighing our neighbors down and letting the Holy Spirit help us offload some of that stuff. Let's do that. What would it look like in our lives to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Biblically speaking, that's an economic revolution. It's the year of jubilee. It's a leveling of the things that prop up economic injustice. Can we let the joy of the Lord have its way with our money? Will we risk that? How can we risk paying attention to the the pain in and around us rather than trying to mask and ignore it so that it can be healed? How can we get down in the ash heap? Not, Not to stay there, but so that we can actually trade those ashes for something beautiful. Will we resist frantically chasing after happiness and stop long enough to let the oil of God's gladness be poured over us and through us onto others? I love that image of the oil of God's gladness. You know, what improbable little acorn of joy does God want you to plant that will will grow up to be an oak tree worthy of God's glory? Go do that. Break up some hard ground and do that. I think what makes the season a season of joy is not just the stuff we love, not just the memories and traditions, but it's this wild hope that the God who anointed and sent Isaiah is still on the move, is still calling, is still anointing, is still healing, is still sending. What makes us a season of joy is the sure and certain promise that we are not stuck with the way things are, but that by God's grace and in the company of Jesus, who was dead and is alive and is coming again, we are caught up in what will be, that God will get the world that God wants. Here's where Isaiah ends this passage. Hear the word of the Lord. For as the earth brings forth its shoots... And as a garden causes what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. May it be so.